Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm John Fleming, professor of English and Comparative Literature, and a member of the graduate class of 1963. I want to uh, in welcome you all cordially to this first on-campus session of our course on the spirit and the flesh, 12 centuries of English religious poetry. I would say a word of welcome as well to all those others unseen to me now who will, however, be hearing this uh, lecture and who are following the same course uh, you are. I have one or two little business items uh, to mention before uh, introducing my friend and colleague, Professor Roach. If you are participating only in today's session, that is, if you will not be here uh, tomorrow, would you please uh, fill out the evaluation form tonight and leave it with Kathy Doyle or Mary Weinstein? I guess I would suggest fill out half of the uh, evaluation form if you're not staying uh, till tomorrow. <clears throat> The lectures uh, that you will be hearing will have the following format. The lectures will be about 45 minutes uh, long with 15 minutes uh, reserved for questions. Now, since we are taping these sessions, uh, we'll have to run around uh, with a microphone uh, to let you ask your uh, qu questions. And the uh, chief microphone runner uh, is Miss Janelle Gertz Robinson over here, who is also one of our preceptors. I'll introduce all the preceptors uh, at tonight's uh, at tonight's uh, lecture. So please hold your questions till the end uh, of the uh, lecture, and then wait till the uh, microphone uh, gets there. Now it is my real pleasure to introduce to you uh, one of my few senior colleagues uh, at uh, Princeton uh, University, uh, Professor uh, Thomas Roach, who also is a uh, Princeton uh, PhD and is a very distinguished scholar in the field of Renaissance uh, literature. He's written very important poems on Edmund Spencer and on the sonnet uh, sequence uh, tradition, which was so much so important a part of uh, Renaissance uh, poetry in England as elsewhere. He also is a great Shakespearean, and in recent years he's added a new arrow to his quiver uh, by being involved in a series of extremely uh, successful student-faculty uh, productions of Shakespearean plays on campus. I, maybe some of you have seen some of those. In, in this regard, he is both cheerleader, director, producer, and uh, bit player. Well, maybe I shouldn't even say bit player. Uh, he is uh, an actor. And he is going to talk. We're not reading any of uh, Shakespeare's poetry in the course because he was not explicitly a religious writer in the way our other poets uh, are, but uh, Professor Roach is going to talk to us on recovering Shakespeare 
as a Christian poet. So help me welcome uh, Tom Roach. It is a great pleasure for me to appear before you this afternoon, but I must confess to some nervousness about appearing in a program prepared by my younger colleague, John Fleming. <laughs> a good many years ago, some part of the 40-year swirl I have spent here, the Roman Catholics of the Aquinas Foundation decided to join with the Episcopalians of the Proctor Foundation to do Lenten readings of literature and their religious implications. I recall that we met in my office downstairs. I think that I began with some Spencer, although later events make my memory quite shaky. The next week, I think that John did some Chaucer, probably the Parson's Tale, which John has characterized as the second most boring sermon ever delivered. And I agree, although neither of us has ever decided on which sermon deserves first place. At the end of the session, it was decided by the group that we would do the Dream of the Rood the following week. And John announced to my horror that he would not be able to attend any further sessions, and he did not. My horror was predicated on the fact that John is the author of the most significant article on that Anglo-Saxon poem the latest rendition of which you have probably already heard in this series. And I hope that his latest rendition is as good as that early article. I am not an Anglo-Saxon scholar, nor was meant to be. <laughs> and I talked to the best of my ability the substance of John's article to the assembled group of eight Lenten students, seven clean scrubbed from the Proctor Foundation and one warty papist. <laughs> you will be happy to hear that I have no further recollection of this strange Lenten device, and John will have even less. I was therefore happy to accept John's invitation to make a cameo appearance in this current series to take my revenge, but I do have total awareness that it is now again a Lenten season, and I have my eye on the back door if anything strange happens. I have also always been aware, since John joined the faculty, that it was strange that a papist should be teaching Renaissance literature and an Episcopalian teaching medieval literature. But this is, of course, all wrong, because medieval is not Catholic nor Renaissance Protestant, as I hope to tell you this afternoon. Catholic and Protestant are merely terms that we have inherited from the 19th century to classify our sense of being different as Christians, of insisting on a pecking order and a priority in which Protestant always takes precedence. Which reminds me of a story told me by my retired colleague, Hans Orsliff, which I have used in every class since I first heard it. It is a story told to him as a small schoolboy in his native Denmark about a so-called olive oil line that runs across the top of Spain and southern France and then peters out somewhere in the Balkans. 
Above that olive oil line, people are Protestant, clean, and use butter. <laughs> Below that line, people are Catholic, dirty, use olive oil, and sing in the streets. <laughs> Hans has always been annoyed that I have seized on this hilarious and stringent view of European history. But I find it as effective as original sin to support my contention about our almost total disregard of how those large and simple issues of incarnation, atonement, and redemption, the Christian mysteries, are lost in the modern attempt to emancipate Christian artists of the medieval and Renaissance periods from their adherence to Christian values. No artist has suffered more from this humanizing effort than William Shakespeare, who I believe was a profoundly Christian poet, perhaps even more profoundly Christian than Dante, who has been canonized as the supreme Christian poet. That is the Shakespeare I want to talk about today, and I would like to begin with his ever-controversial play, The Merchant of Venice. In fact, I will only talk about The Merchant of Venice uh, because I got carried away with the subject, and that's what you're going to hear. <laughs> Four years ago, I played the cameo role of Old Gabo, the old blind father of the clown Lancelot Gabo, who appears only in this scene, a scene that is usually cut in performance, but which I am convinced is essential for a Christian reading of the play. Old Gabo comes in seeking his only son and stumbles over him. In the ensuing comic discourse, it is mentioned several times that he is carrying a dish of doves. That was the prop. <laughs> Apparently, it was some kind of pigeon pie. Now, it's absurd. Yes, indeed. It's just a prop. Yes, indeed. Of no significance to the play, well, maybe. Of all the clownish characters in Shakespeare's comedies, none is more unexpected than old Gobbo, the old blind father of the clown Launcelot Gobbo. He appears unpredicted in Act 2, Scene 2, disappears at the end of the scene, and is forgotten for the rest of the play. He has no connection to either of the two plots, the money plot or the will plot, and is one of the most brilliant efflorescences of Shakespeare's genius that apparently requires no comment, for there is no critical assessment of old Gobbo's function in the play. At best, he is viewed as comic relief, whatever that may be. But his appearance begins a series of five scenes in Act Two that change the valence of the whole play if we are not viewing the play as naturalistic drama about just real people. These scenes are sandwiched between the appearance of the Prince of Morocco, intent on winning the hand of the wealthy Portia by choosing among three caskets of gold silver and lead by the will of Portia's dead father, Act 2, Scene 1. He ends his action in the play by choosing, in Scene 7, the golden casket, and what he finds is a skull with a scroll stuck in one empty socket. All that glisters is not gold. Often have you heard that told. Many a man his life hath sold but my outside to behold. 
gilded tombs do worms enfold. Had you been as wise as bold, young in limbs, in judgment old, your answer had not been enscrolled. Fare you well, your suit is cold. <laughs> Value in this world does not count. It leads merely to death of one's wishes, and Morocco leaves the stage defeated and cursed to a life of celibacy, or at least unmarriage, by the will of a father. It is good theater, it is also good doctrine, for that is what that skull in the golden casket means. Radix malorum est cupiditas, Timothy 6. For the desire of money is the root of all evil, as the Genevan Bible translates it. Morocco has been lured by Portia's vast wealth and has lost the world by his choice. He has misjudged a father's will, but at this moment in the play, we may not be aware that Shakespeare may not be only signifying the plot device of Portia's earthly father's earthly will. Within the framework of the two Morocco scenes, we have the five scenes that I want to concentrate in this talk. And what I want to prove to you is that these five scenes are full of Christian references that flesh out and amplify the significance of the defeat of Morocco. At the beginning of Act Two, Scene Two, we meet the zany comic Lancelot Gabo, who is given a long soliloquy in which he decides to leave the Jew, his master, tormented by the contrary voices of his conscience and his fiend. Conscience advising staying with the Jew and the fiend advising flight in which it is very clear that Lancelot is engaging in the chop logic of all Shakespeare's clowns, in which always the spirit and the letter are confused, a subject of some importance to this seminar. In this case, his conscience is telling him to stay with the wealthy Jew and not go to serve the impecunious Bassanio, whom we have just seen having to ask his wealthy friend Antonio to finance his courtship of Portia. In modern parlance, he is asking whether he should go to graduate school in English or to law or business school. <laughs> On his decision to follow the fiend, enter old Gabo, armed with his dish of doves, asking his way to master Jews. Lancelot recognizes his old father and decides to try confusions with him, one of which, as he kneels to ask the old man's blessing, is a parody of the confusion perpetrated by Jacob on old blind Isaac to gain the inheritance of Esau, Genesis 27. Old Gabo is not convinced primarily because of the young interloper's insistence that it is Master Launcelot, thank you, a title of social advancement that the old man denies to his still unrecognized son and secondarily because of the old man's exaggerated sense of social distinctions, as witnessed in the subtlety of his first two speeches. He comes in first, Master young man, you, I pray you, which is the way to master Jews? Second speech, Master young gentleman, I pray you, which is the way to master Jews? Now the confusion is not clarified until Lancelot mentions his mother Marjorie, at which point the old man accepts the truth of his paternity by changing his pronouns from you to the familiar thou, and is urged by Lancelot to give his gift of doves 
not to Shylock, but to Lancelot's hoped-for new master, Bassanio, at which point, of course, enter Bassanio, who under a counterpuntal assault by both old father and son, grants Lancelot a new livery, and in triumph, Lancelot leads the old father off, still with his dish of doves, to oblivion so far as the action of the play is concerned. <clears throat> the scene is expendable, as in the Olivier film, or in any other medium that wants to view this play as naturalistic drama. But Merchant of Venice is not naturalistic drama. The scene is as important to an understanding of this play as the Porter scene is to Macbeth. It has slight antecedent plot connection and no consequences for the plot, and yet it imports an intellectuality to the preceding and consequent action that is ignored at peril. Lancelot decides to leave his old master, Shylock, to follow a new master, Bassanio, in a new livery, after his reconciliation with his old blind father, frantic to give away that mysterious dish of doves to any master to whom his son is bound. Now, why do I hear so many biblical echoes here? Surely, Shakespeare wants us to recall Jesus called no man master from Matthew 23, and even more important, from Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. The changing of the livery is surely a reference to Paul's putting off the old man and putting on the new man of Ephesians 4 and 5. For to move from service to Shylock to that of Bassanio with that new livery is a tempting motivation in this world. But some of you may be asking now if I'm not pushing the Christian reading of this scene because we are not aware that Bassanio was a chapel deacon or particularly Christian in any way but by name. That is all true, and that is Shakespeare's point. He gives us a particularly zany Marx Brothers version of human action in this play, and that is why that silly dish of doves is so particularly important. There is no reason for its being there, particularly as in our production at Theater Antim, Old Gabo presents it to Bassanio. Bassanio takes a whiff, thinks it stinks, and refuses to accept it. It is always funny, and in my view, profoundly serious. The old blind man with a silly prop, trying to impose it on the new master of his rascally song, and refused. What could be more absurd? Unless we think about the history of doves in the Bible that spirit that hovered over the waters and brought forth life, that dove that returned to the ark of Noah, that dove that descended to the apostles on Pentecost. That dish of doves, I think, is nothing other than the Holy Spirit that we reject every time we do not obey the will of the Father. And if you are following my allegorical descant, we suddenly begin to see the trial of the Prince of Morocco as something more than just human reality. We are being forced to see allegorically. Allegory, as an old teacher of mine once said, allegory is a method of reading in which we are made to think about things we already know. We are not dealing with a retelling of biblical narratives, but with the significance of those narratives. This scene that I have just described is followed by a flurry of realigned loyalties. Lancelot, of course, has left the service of Shylock 
and has been taken into the service of Bosanio. Graziano, who speaks an infinite deal of nothing more than any man in all Venice, as he's described in Act One, begs to accompany Bassanio to Belmont. Jessica, Shylock's daughter, enlists Lancelot to help her escape from her father's house, which she describes, our house is hell, in order to become a Christian and to marry Lorenzo. Suddenly, most of the cast, including Shylock, are bid to a great supper. Shylock on his own, but Jessica is the torchbearer for the rest. The supper never occurs because Antonio sees that the wind is come about, a point to which I will return later in this lecture. And Bassanio, Lancelot, Graziano, Jessica, and Lorenzo set off to Belmont. All of this anticipatory and aborted action in Acts, Act 2, scene 2 through 6, occurs between the appearance of the Prince of Morocco to take up the wager of the three caskets and his failure to win Portia. He fails because he esteems valued surfaces, gold, and his failure should remind us that his is the first completed action in the play. He is finished, out, because he has not read correctly the secrets of a father's will. He reads surfaces, values as the world sees them, and the play finds his reading not only wrong, but lacking in understanding issues that the play insists must be understood. It is not only his failure, but a failure of the world to understand what is important. Who would not go for the gold? And that is what this play is telling us is wrong with our perception of the world we live in. Morocco's failure, so completely in the service of the narrative and the forward action of the play, should make us rethink those intervening scenes in which masters, fathers, liveries are changed, in which dishes of doves and great suppers are not consumed, in which Jewish girls called Jessica become torchbearers to these unconsummated feasts. It is all hilarity and misunderstood nonsense unless one sees that the action of these interior scenes grows out of Christian metaphors so common and pervasive in the Renaissance that it is only we moderns who cannot understand them. These scenes must carry a weight that goes beyond our apprehension of the plot. They most, must be both surface action and simple. Now these scenes are very much like that moonlit lyrical descant of Jessica and Lorenzo in Act 5, Scene 1, where they have been happily installed in Belmont and are waiting the return of Portia from her mysterious absence. These lovers involve themselves in the roles of famous lovers of the past, Troilus and Cressida, Pyramus and Thisbe, Dido and Aeneas, Jason and Medea, for all of whom love became tragedy. They will escape this curse only because of the superintendence of Portia and her good deed in a naughty world and their own unwavering love. That Jessica runs away from her father and is converted in order to marry Lorenzo points up the significance of her name as a feminine derivative from Jesse, the father of David, of whom the prophet Isaiah predicts, and there shall come forth a rod out of the root of Jesse, and a flower shall rise up out of his root, Isaiah 11. 
This prophecy has been traditionally associated with the 42 generations of the genealogy of Jesus given in the first chapter of Matthew. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and, 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 and Jesse begot David the king, and Jacob, another Jacob, begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. This genealogy is important because it draws together several stands of the genealogy that Shakespeare has given to Jessica. She is the daughter of Shylock, needless to say, and her mother, who is oddly named Leah, which just happens to be the name of the first wife of Shylock's favorite patriarch, Jacob. Leah was foisted off on him by his uncle Laban after seven years' service to win her sister Rachel, Genesis 29. There are no biblical Jessicas, and this gives Shakespeare a chance to allow Launcelot to taunt Jessica in Act 3, Scene 5, about the chances of her being saved. Launcelot. Therefore be of good cheer, for truly I think you are damned. There is but one hope in it that can do you any good, and that is a kind of bastard hope neither, Jessica. And what hope is that, I pray thee? Mary, you may partly hope that your father got you not, that you are not the Jew's daughter. That were a bastard kind of hope indeed. So the sins of my mother should be visited on me. Truly then I fear you are damned both by father and mother. Well, you're gone both ways. I shall be saved by my husband. He hath made me a Christian. Now, Lancelot's scurvy treatment of Jessica should not obscure for us the fact that Jessica has won the argument, at least from the Christian point of view. Her name associates her with the Davidic succession of Christ. Like Lancelot, who has moved from one master to another, from Shylock to Bassanio, she has moved from her participation in the old law, that is her subjection to her father Shylock, to marriage with a Christian under the new law of Christ. The fact that she steals most of her father's money when she runs away with her Christian lover and that she becomes the torchbearer makes her sound as if she were a 20s flapper, but that was not Shakespeare's point. He wants her actions to be read allegorically as the movement from the old law to the new law proclaimed by Jesus in the New Testament. Do not imagine that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to complete them, Matthew 5. What Jessica is doing in stealing her father's money is not naturalistic, dramatic play. She is taking the worldly substance of that old law world and bringing it into her new world of the new law. The fact that she is to be a torchbearer to lead all the company to that dinner prepared by Antonio is not a theatrical trick, but a statement that the Davidic succession will lead all of the characters of this play to that final supper where we will all rejoice. Now, you may object that the supper in the play is never eaten, never gone to, never seen, and that too is true. But none of us will ever eat that supper until all of our playing is over. I should mention also that there are few torches or torch bearers in the New Testament. The only one that I could find was in John 18.3, where Jesus withdraws to the Garden of Gethsemane 
and is betrayed by Judas, accompanied with a detachment of guards sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees, all with lanterns and torches and weapons. I need hardly say that this torch-like procession leads to the death of Jesus, and also the most glorious torch-like procession that the human race has ever seen, because it leads us all to the Supper of the Lamb. Of course, that can't be presented on the stage, but Shakespeare, I believe, intended us to be thinking of it in watching this wild and whirling worldly comedy. It is Jessica, with that strange name, who escapes from her father, taking with her his money, who becomes the torchbearer of this frivolous company who never get to the dinner, which cannot be given in this play anyway. She is the transitional figure between old law and new law, and do not bother me about the nastiness of her stealing all her father's credit cards. Let's get back to that dish of doves, which I suggested earlier has to be the gift of the Holy Spirit, refused because misunderstood and neutralized by the genius of Shakespeare into a theatrical prop, except for those who read with the spirit. Those five scenes that intervene between the first appearance of the Prince of Morocco and his final defeat, having gone for the gold, are a confused but coherent grammar of Christian theology that tells you why this play is usually described as a play about mercy and justice. You will undoubtedly have noticed that I have not mentioned Antonio, nor Portia, and Shylock merely as he suited my Christian reading. Let me begin with Antonio. Antonio is the merchant of Venice, and not Shylock as some of you may think. It is, the, it is he whose wealth almost equals that of Portia, but his is invested in the things of this world. His ships, unlike Portia's wealth, which is secured by her father's will. At the beginning of the play, we read this all as money, big money. But at the end, we have to see a difference in their investments. It is he who begins the play alone, and who ends the play as lonely as he was at the beginning, except for a good deed in a naughty world. He says, In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff tis made of, whereof tis born, I am to learn. And such a want with sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. This sadness, inexplicable, has led critics interested in the naturalistic demands of Shakespeare's theater to suggest that he is sad because in the ensuing action of this scene in which his best friend Bassanio comes in to ask him to support his pursuit of Portia, in Belmont is a lady richly left. Boy, they've really done research on this whole thing, you know. I mean, he's got her credit card number down, you're sure. Uh, anyway, he comes in 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 Belmont as a lady richly left. Uh, the suggestion is that the sadness comes because uh, Antonio is really in love with Bassanio. Now this, <clears throat> I think, is a total misreading of the play, and it's a way to privilege the 20th century's favorite sin, gay love. For the 19th century, it was simply incest, witness Byron and his half-sister. But these modern divagations of sin are all beside the point, 
and are defeated by the answer of Salerio to Antonio's first speech. Your mind is tossing on the ocean. There were your argosies with portly sail like seniors and rich burghers on the flood, or as it were the pageants of the sea, do overpeer the petty traffickers that curtsy to them, do them reverence as they fly by them with their woven wings. This sadness is not from love, but from concern over his investments on the sea, his money. This merchant of Venice, Antonio, is concerned about worldly things, and they make him sad, as he should have learned from the Bible and possibly even Boethius, whose consolation of philosophy advised against such fretting about the things of this world. This whole play is about money, as its title suggests. And when the friend arrives to make his request for money, Antonio, who's really a very nice guy, agrees to give the loan, although he has no ready cash. But by taking out a loan from Shylock and securing that loan by any means demanded by Shylock, this is a bad deal in any terms because we do not know what Shylock will demand. Bad business, but Antonio's problem is not sex. Antonio's sadness comes from the human condition in which we put our trust in worldly goods and ships on the sea are the perfect example of this imperfect trust, especially in the Renaissance when so much exploration and exploitation of the new world was in daily evidence. Portia too is sad because she is constrained by a father's will to accept as husband any man who understands her father's injunctions and can guess the riddle of those three caskets. But her assets are secure, not on the sea. They are so secure that we never learn where the father's investments are, I think with very good reason. Bassanio arrives and Portia immediately falls in love with him and having seen Morocco fail in his choice of the gold and Aragon fail in his choice of the silver, we know that the real winner must be in that lead casket. But here Shakespeare pulls a real trick on all of us allegorists in that Portia helps Bassanio to choose correctly, not only through the spirit, but through the letter, because this time she has a little musical accompaniment to help out. Tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head, how begot, how nourish ed. Well, you get the point. Now, any production worth its salt will take advantage of these lead rhymes to show that Portia is cooperating with the will of her father, although her earthly father might not have approved of this trick of the letter. But surely Bassanio is too smart to let these hints go by, and of course he is successful. Nevertheless, in the midst of all the happiness of a father's will being fulfilled both in letter and spirit, and the human lovers united, at least in mind and heart, a letter arrives. What a letter? Let me read it to you. Sweet Bassanio, my ships have all miscarried. My creditors grow cruel. My estate is very low. My bond to the Jew is forfeit. And since in paying it, it is impossible I should live. Deaths are cleared between you and I, if I might but see you at my death. Notwithstanding, use your pleasure. If your love not persuade you to come, let not my letter. Now here is the letter as prop, and also as prompt book to the spirit. 
If your love not persuade you to come, let not my letter. Letter and love, letter and spirit, dish of doves. What we see before us as palpable reality has a further significance if we only read as Christians. And Portia immediately responds, Oh, love, dispatch all business. I think that's an important word there. Dispatch all business and be gone. Even the world of mercantilism may be saved with such Portias in the world. Now let me jump on quickly here to the trial scene because the most famous scene in Shakespeare, just, just about certainly most famous scene here. Uh, and I want to talk about it a little bit. As you well know, Portia and Nerissa go off and they become lawyers, so to speak, in order to defend Antonio. The scene is set in the court of justice in Venice with the Duke presiding. Antonio is already there and receives the sympathy of the Duke, but replies that since there is no lawful means to rescue him, he is content to submit to the demands of his bond. Shylock enters and is advised by the Duke to show mercy. In our uh, play, we had Shylock sitting down, and at one point he crosses his legs, takes out a knife, and starts sharpening it on his shoe. Shylock's reply is irreproachable in a court of law. The bond has been legally set to set aside the law because of sympathy now would be to undermine the law of the state. If you deny it, let the danger light upon your charter and your city's freedom. Shylock is absolutely right. To deny the primacy of the law is to deny the possibility or the continuance of civilization. Invective, protest, Everything but the sit-in is urged against Shylock's claim, but he can maintain his legal calm and identify himself. Till thou canst rail the seal from off my bond, thou but offense thy lungs to speak so loud. Repair thy wit, good youth, or it will fall to cureless ruin. I stand for law. Shylock is not here speaking as a realistic character, is not even speaking as a caricature of a human being. Shakespeare is presenting him, unless we think that Shakespeare is a fool, as a state of mind that can occur in any time or place. Shylock is not demanding his pound of flesh because he is a mean Jewish merchant, but because he himself is bound by the law of the flesh and not by the spirit. If one accepts the law, one abides by the law. So Abraham was compelled to sacrifice Isaac, but the difference is significant. Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac out of a higher allegiance of love and duty. Shylock is fulfilling the law out of hatred and self-satisfaction. Into the agonized suspense of this debate come Portia and Nerissa, who, if the director has any sense at all, will come in with their legal wigs slightly askew. This is a comedy, albeit serious. Portia immediately accepts the conditions of Shylock's claim. Do you confess the bond? I do. No human beings can dare to deny that bond of the flesh. And with such a confession of dependence, Portia's next speak, speech is not the non sequitur that it is often taken to be. Then must the Jew be merciful. If one accepts a debt to God and to his law, then human justice must be merciful if we are to treat our neighbor as ourselves. 
The famous speech that follows takes up a point that the Duke tried to make earlier in the scene, but he could not. The Duke had simply juxtaposed the two claims, Shylock's for justice and Antonio's for life. This will not do on it under any law. Portia forces the issue to its ultimate resolution in God, the source of the law that Shylock is trying to enforce. The speech has been so much ruined by amateur theatricals that I will have the effrontery to read it to you now and to ask you simply to listen to its argument. It draws the issues of this debate back to their ultimate source and makes us think of the foundation of the law. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is a throne in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation we do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which, if thou follow, this strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. This speech has often been interpreted as the clincher in the case against Shylock. It is not. It is poignant and rhapsodic, and like the speeches of Lorenzo and Jessica in Act V, it is meant to shift us into another plane of reality, which it does. We learn that the bond can now be paid, and having had a look at the wealth in Belmont, we know by whom. But Portia has another game she must play through. It may be fine to be able to buy oneself off, but it is even better to win an argument of such moment. Portia sticks to the claims of the law, and Shylock begins to think that she is on his side, as in one sense she is. Portia's game is nothing less than to free both Antonio from Shylock and Shylock from himself. She is trying to save Shylock as well. All the while that she's rolling up her sleeves to help him get his pound of flesh, she is telling him about the impossibility of exacting such justice in this world. The scales are readied, but how can you tell when you've cut one pound until it is weighed? The law will not allow anything more or less. It certainly will not allow one jot of blood. And even we begin to see, we begin to see, the mental flaw in Shylock's argument that we had not seen until this point. The real question is, how do you divide human life, flesh, spirit, body, soul, the law, and the spirit, no matter how much they wore, must be a unity because God created them that they should be so. Lest Portia gain too easy a victory after her brilliant assault on Shylock, Shakespeare gives her the dubious cheering section of Graziano, who has been so dumb and garrulous throughout the play. 
applause can always come from total incomprehension. Nerissa's flippant aside earlier in the scene and Graziano's fatuous but well-meaning kudos assure us once more that this is comedy. Despite this, Shylock is defeated of Antonio, and while Antonio and the Duke fiddle about who is to get his money in all generosity, Shylock is defeated of himself in a strange way. He is condemned to be baptized. Portia asked, Are thou contented, Jew? What dost thou say? I am content. Clerk, draw a deed of gift. I pray you give me leave to go from hence. I am not well. Send the deed after me, and I will sign it. Now, for modern critics, this is the real crux of the play. They clap wildly at the brilliance of the defeat of Shylock. They even see the poetic justice of having his ducats taken away. Baptized, no. These people see the imposition of baptism as an assault on human rights. They see it as a denial of free will. They even see it as an artistic flaw, and it is none of these. It is the logical culmination of all the issues we have been discussing. Let us discuss the matter both from the standpoint of Christianity and from the standpoint of the plague. I, of course, will maintain that the two are exactly the same, but there are some who disagree with me. Baptism is that sacrament that releases us from the bond of Adam's curse, that allows us to escape the bondage of the legalism of the old law and to fulfill our debt through the atonement of Christ. For a Christian, baptism is not a penalty but a privilege. It is true that some theologians have argued that baptism should not be forced and that both Pope and Holy Roman Emperor had declared that no Jew should be forced to be baptized. But we have had Shylock's words, I am content. By any law, he too is bound. Shakespeare also has given Shylock a most distinctive syncopated speech in this play, and on occasion he allows genuinely touching human traits to show through, like his regret over Leah's ring which Jessica has taken from him. No one withholds sympathy. Earlier in that first scene of Act Three, we have his famous speech in retaliation against his Christian tormentors. He was asked, why do you want that pound of flesh by Salerio? To bait fish withal. If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian in. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. If a Jew wrong a Christian, what is his humility? Revenge. If a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his sufferance be by Christian example? Why, revenge. The villainy you teach me, I, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. He's a good villain. 
This speech is the basis for treating Shylock as a tragic figure, but that is not its primary function in the play. Certainly we see that Shylock is human. Um, every speech is a reference to some part of the body. I mean, he, he is total physicality in, in his vocabulary. Certainly we see in the play that Christian acts have been less than Christian. And the Pope would be interested in this play, I think, at this point. But the sympathy generated by these speeches is meant to show us that even this wicked creature is worthy of human consideration and divine redemption. That this very humanity which Shakespeare forces on us brings Shylock too into the realm of God's mercy precisely because he is a Jew and a very bad one. His observance of the law needs correction. Uh, and he misses the point of every scriptural allusion he cites. You don't have to worry about that. I don't have time to go into that. But I'll give one example. In Act 3, Scene 1, toward the end, Shylock again convicts himself of not understanding the law in a simple interchange with Tubal, who has come to tell him of his daughter's deceits in her elopement. Remember, she's stolen the ring, and uh, Shylock says... How much did she get for it? One monkey. That ring, he says, is worth a barrel of monkeys. That's really not the point. But anyway, you get the point, I'm sure. Once more, Shylock cannot complain any more than to say that Jessica got a very bad bargain because Shylock would have not have sold it except for not a barrel of monkeys, but a wilderness of monkeys. In short, he misses the point of what fidelity is all about. Leia's ring is worth more than one monkey, but to someone who knows its worth, you could get a whole wilderness of them. Jessica just does not know what is the value of that thing. Now, the motive of the ring is brought up, picked up again in the little game that Portia and Nerissa play on their unsuspecting husbands immediately after the trial scene. Uh, and the fifth act is usually taken as just, oh, this play is getting sillier and sillier. I mean, I want out. We've seen the trial scene. That's it. He's safe. Let's go. But in point of fact, that fifth scene, the fifth act is a complete rerun of all the issues that we have seen throughout the play. The rings that Portia and Nerissa beg from Bassanio and Graziano turn the serious comedy we have just observed in the trial scene toward the proper perspective. Like the ring that Leia gave to Shylock, these rings were given as a pledge of love. They are another kind of bond. But at this point, when the play appears to be getting sillier and sillier, it is indeed becoming quite profound. For the situation of the rings recapitulates in a loving and comic way the real pathos of Shylock's view of life. After receiving this ring from Leia, Shylock bound himself to her, and if you will, to a way of life. Jessica, the offspring of that union, takes away the ring when she runs off with the young Christian Lorenzo. Jessica and that strange clown, Lancelot Gabo, are in some way parallel. They both run away from fathers, one of whom is literally blind. Lancelot makes much of Jessica's conversion. In fact, he makes fun of it in that passage that I read to you earlier. To signify the happiness of this fulfillment, Shakespeare gives us that lyrical praise of love at the beginning of Act 5, that I've already quoted. Uh, 
Jessica and Lorenzo are the old law and the new law embracing under the aegis of, of Portia's very fine place, Belmont. But still, Portia must play through her second trial scene in which we are jollied into believing that the consequences are slighter. They are not. In both scenes, Shakespeare is forcing us to see the fulfillment of the law. In the trial scene, the new law fulfills the old law to the very last jot of blood. Mercy acts through justice. In the final scene, after our vision of the harmony of Lorenzo and Jessica, we watch the new law demand a justice of which we are totally assured because we know all the facts. Both sides of the argument speak truth, and we as the audience become as gods who know all and forgive all. Portia pretends that the ring was a bond that has been now forfeited. She can say that Bassanio gave her ring to a woman, and Bassanio can in all truth say that he has given it to a young man, and we can laugh with assurance as we did not do early in the trial scene. Antonio must once more give himself as a surety for his friend. New rings are exchanged, but they turn out to be the very rings in question, and once more all is cleared up. Those rings that were given in faith became bonds of the law and were forfeited unknowingly, and if you will allow me the liberty, will be ratified only in the flesh around the heart when the happy couples go off to bed. Only Antonio remains uncoupled, as so many of those wicked critics who do not see the play as I do maintain. Of course, he begins that play with the strange feeling of sadness that I read to you earlier on. I know not why I am so sad. We are to learn from this play that his sadness is the human condition, always uncertain, always unsure. Man is precarious. If he tries to stand, he may fall because in the Christian context, man is always falling unless he is slaved by love, God's love for us, which created us and sustains us. We do not learn this from the all too infrequent visits of the deity. We learn it from faith that out of the uncertainties of life, out of all our endeavors come justice and mercy. The play does not make this so explicit as I have, but I am certain that Shakespeare would not have disagreed with me that man is a born according to the laws of nature. He also would have agreed that no less certainly man is subject to another law first manifested to Moses in the Ten Commandments and later in the person of Christ. Both laws quite explicitly made the basis of this play. Antonio learns during the course of the play that he is in peril of his life from one law because his ships in which he has faith have not come in. And he also learns that he can be saved by another law and that at the end of the play he is alone again. Suddenly we begin to see that those ships are not merely devices of the money plot, but symbol of any life pilgrimage and the uncertainty of everything in this life. We are all giddy and can all flounder on those perilous seas. As with all things of this world except love, those ships are lost. Antonio, bereft of his ships, offers himself for his friend and is saved by a lady whom he does not know. Antonio is the figure of man betrayed by the vagaries of this world, beset by the claims of justice, and saved from those claims by mercy. At the end of the play, he is, as I said, alone again, 
except for his good deed in a naughty world, offering his life in forfeit for his friend, which should be enough for anyone except the generous hand of Shakespeare. He gets another letter. Sweet lady, you have given me life and living, for here I read for certain that my ships are safely come to road. Now the ships have come back. He is rich again, but we are not allowed to see the effect on him because the play ends. Shakespeare does not tell us that his sadness stopped. He did not have to. The other comedies would tell us that no one is lonely at the end of a Shakespearean comedy, except for those who cannot accommodate themselves to society. But in this play, Antonio is left alone, no longer sad, but with his ships. And if we had read the play correctly, we will see that these ships will be consumed neither by rust nor moth, and that their history is related to basic Christian imagery ennobled by St. Augustine and Boethius and many more of God's saints. Antonio has been given by his act of charity life and living and a road for his ships, that is, the directions for those ships and the treasure they carry. Shakespeare is telling us that no one can ask for more in this life. And I'd like to think that Boethius himself could not have asked for more consolation. Thank you. Uh, at what point in history does my kind of interpretation disappear from a reading? Oh, 19th century, I should think where they begin to suddenly uh, really generate total sympathy for Shylock, of a wrong sort, I would say. Yes? I have less a question than an observation. Your uh, reference to the torchbearers, uh, the, the torchbearer that I thought of was the, uh, were the wise and foolish virgins or bridesmaids in Matthew 25 in the parable. Um, with Jessica uh, being portrayed in the play as one of the uh, wise ones, but being right. seen as one of the foolish ones by uh, her antagonist. Mm -hmm. uh, the other uh, thing I, I note is that uh, you make reference to the uh, genealogy in Matthew that uh, probably would be enriched for Jessica's case uh, by recognizing that it's the only genealogy in the Bible that includes uh, women, uh, most of whom uh, take, have to take matters into their own hands in order to further uh, God's purposes. Mm -hmm. um, strikes me that Jessica um, fills all of those uh, prototypes. Absolutely. I accept everything you said. <laughs> uh, Tom, uh, it may not surprise you to know that I don't read the play exactly as you do, but I don't read it with as much authority either. And I... I uh, Obviously, the, uh, the uh, structure, the Christian structure uh, that you have pointed out is present throughout, and uh, I think you, you've illustrated that very clearly. But the tone of the play uh, is certainly not explicitly Christian, I would say, uh, the, uh, and, the, uh, and I'm wondering to what extent the, the baptism of Shylock uh, can be seen as uh, uh, a justification, could it not also be seen as a Christian spite or even a joke? Nasty question. Uh, no, no, it isn't nasty at all. I think there are a good many people who would agree with you. I don't. 
I, I think that Shakespeare is a Christian poet, that's my premise. And so far as tone goes, it depends on what kind of tone of voice you want the actors to portray him. Uh, if you have your Portia coming out and almost with a knife held against things, are you content? He can't do anything else. I would like to see it just as I am content. All right, I just give up. He is sort of trapped. That's my, my feeling in the, uh, that, about that particular situation. But uh, I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I marveled at all of the illustrations which you put forth, mm -hmm. and I thought it was a very impressive talk indeed. Yes, I was wondering uh, if the, uh, the idea of the, uh, the, the mercy turning the, the tide of the, uh, the whole philosophy of it, uh, if you're aware of uh, any uh, present court cases where that did sway and, and changed anything? No, I'm not. Um, I think Shakespeare is playing around. All Elizabethan writers knew their law very, very carefully. And I think that trial scene is very, she is trying to cleave right to the letter of the law throughout. But she turns around in that, the quality of mercy speech to the whole idea of the beginning of mercy, that it is a power that is it's an attribute of God himself. And Shylock is not showing any of that. I think that yeah. really if, if someone of us wanted to go in and present it, I want a pound of flesh that the judge today might certainly have something to say about it that would get it out of court soon. You know, you'd have a psychiatrist brought in today. Uh, the, the performance of this play has been very, very difficult in, in the last 25 years or so. I, I've, I've heard directors despair of even trying to present it anymore. When you produced the play, did, what did you use to convey your interpretation in, in the performance? Well, I wasn't directing it, but I, I, well, a student of mine was directing it. What we, I have to stay here, uh, and what we did uh, was to have Jessica come in at the end of the play to see Shylock, and he comes in with the crucifix on, and he embraces her, and then just watches her go slowly off with uh, um, Lorenzo. And he turns to the audience and just bursts into tears. You can interpret that any way you want. That's how we got out of that problem. But I mean, if you, as soon as you get into the sociological problem of what this character Shylock is like and what he has perpetrated in anti-Semitism, that's, I don't think Shakespeare had that in mind at all. In the first place, he didn't know any Jews because there were none in England. Uh, and he's using him as a figure of, of the old law. There's no question in my mind about that. But it is difficult. Uh, I once was teaching this play, and I had um, a high school teacher was sitting in on the precept, and she taught in Haifa. And she said, I'm not coming to the precept next. I said, no, you have to really come. She said, 
I don't find this play very funny at all. And I said, well, I can, I can understand that, but what if it's not really about Jews? It's about the old law. He said, I don't even like this old law business either. <laughs> uh, she did come, and she ranted and raved for the whole thing. It is a very difficult problem and very hard one to answer. Uh,